Hello there. You're about to listen to an episode of Food and Health Talk, Legacy Food and Health Talks. You know, in 2023, Food and Health Talks rebranded and relaunched as change makers. But all the episode we've recorded up to this point is still available for you to listen. And you're just about to listen to one of them. Enjoy it. And don't forget, Food and Health Talks is now Changemaker Podcast. Thank you. Welcome to a new episode of the Food and Health Talks podcast, a show focused on educating and empowering people to create a healthier future through nutrition and wellness education. A show where you will find interviews with leading scientists making groundbreaking discoveries, innovators, and global food industry leaders. It is that show you do not want to miss with your host, Dr. Julia Oleanju. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Food and Health Talks. On this episode, we'll be talking about personalized nutrition. We have a panel conversation that is focused exclusively on clarifying any ambiguity on the subject of nutrition, personalized nutrition in particular. What does it mean? What are some of the important facts that's worth highlighting about personalized nutrition? So we have experts um, that will be joining this conversation. We also have innovators that are innovating in the personalized nutrition space to share with us what they're doing, what the future holds for this uh, particular area of um, of um, healthcare. So if this conversation has been pre-recorded, it was recorded during the Global Food Health Summit. It's an engaging conversation that's worth sharing over and over again. And I'm so glad to share the conversation with you. So sit back and enjoy the conversation, which was led by Victor Penev, the founder and CEO of Edelman. So Victor, it's over to you. Thank you, Julia. So I'm super excited to be here. Uh, I think this would be a really good panel. It is really timely discussion. Uh, as you probably um, uh, all know, uh, we are living in a time where food is becoming more and more important in the way people think about their health, preventing, getting sick, uh, getting uh, you know well, uh, and just and, and being you know eating in a very personalized and helpful manner so um we have three amazing people that are joining today to discuss and they've spent years and decades uh, investigating the topics of you know, food as medicine personalized nutrition uh and they definitely know the facts and the myths so um we have diana uh maury and rick and i'll instead of introducing each one of them i'll let them introduce themselves and then i uh, will jump into questions uh, just um, if you uh, have any questions for the panel, uh, if they come up uh, during the session or separately, just type them in the chat box and um, uh, I'll make sure to leave time at the end so that we can discuss um, uh, whatever you, is on your minds. With that, I'll turn over to the panelists. Uh, maybe Diana, you can go first and describe a little bit about what you do and um, you know, how, you, how you end up here. Sure, thank you so much. It's great to be here with all of you. Uh, so yes, I'm Deanna Minnick. I have a, a master's and a PhD in nutrition and health-related science. I've worked in the food industry. I've been a, a long-time uh, consultant and has wor I've worked as the vice president of scientific affairs in a dietary supplement company. 
And so what I do currently is I have an educational platform whereby I teach people about nutrition, supplements, and food. And I continue to lecture for a number of different institutes. And I have a keen interest in personalized nutrition. I do think that in the 21st century, this is where we have shifted. So watching the progression, and I've recently been part of a, um, a position paper in collaboration with the American Nutrition Association on establishing how do we define personalized nutrition. So I'm excited for this panel today because I've been steeped in this for some time. Excellent. Um, maybe Rick, you can go next. Sure. Hello, everyone. I'm Rick Weiss. I'm the President, founder, and, and my favorite title, Chief Wellness Engineer at uh, BioCare. Um, my background is a computer engineer. I started my career as an applied researcher at Bell Labs back in the, in the 80s. But 27 years ago, I recognized the need of diet and disease relationship and started BioCare with the goal of helping providers help their patients eat better through the use of technology. So in my case, it's mostly software. Uh, we develop software, software, digital healthcare company. Um, most of our development has been done through National Institutes of Health, SBIR grants. I've been the principal investigator on over on 26 NIH grants so far, about uh, $12 million. Our main product is a tool called Viascreen, which is a dietary assessment questionnaire, but it's a questionnaire nothing like uh, most people have seen before. We used over 1,200 pictures to improve the estimation of portion sizes. This is being used by both researchers and clinicians around the world. We work with NIH, Harvard, American Gut Project at UC San Diego on the research side. Clini clinicians include Mayo Clinic, Ohio State, and Dr. Dean Ornish's lifestyle program. In addition to uh, uh, using our technology for just diet assessment, we also have a capability of providing personalized nutrition feedback which right now Geisinger is testing in a uh, study of 300 hypertension patients. And right now the early results are very promising. We're dropping blood pressure by eight points and people are losing on an average 10 pounds of weight loss. So I'm very excited to be uh, part of this panel and getting more deeper into the personalized nutrition part. Excellent, thank you so much, Rick. So Maury, last but not least. Hello everyone, I'm delighted to be here. Maury Bahar, I'm CEO and founder of Personal Remedies. A quick note on my background, uh, it's all high-tech industry. Uh, I've been around uh, high-tech industry as CEO or vice president in a variety of the startups uh, for at least two, uh, two, three decades. I just look very young. Um, in terms of Personal Remedies, our focus is to provide fully automated, individualized dietary guidance, taking into account an individual's multiple chronic illnesses, allergies, dietary preferences, and medications. I realize that that's a very ambitious goal. Uh, it took us a while to get here. Uh, and in a nutshell, what we do is we use the available science on relationships between different nutrients and different food items. And we also use the available science about the nutrient content of various food items. And our AI-based technology and algorithms take all of that science into account in order to establish helpfulness or harmfulness 
of any given food as it relates to any given illness. Okay, thank you. I have worked in the past with, uh, with Diana, with Maury, we've talked a lot with Rick, so I, I know they, they're really on the forefront of uh, what is happening in terms of science and applying science to eating healthfully. Um, so with that, we'll jump straight into the first question, which is kind of getting the temperature for everybody that's watching of what personalization is, uh, what is the promise of personalization in food, and uh, you know, what is the status quo of personalization? It's kind of this bundle of questions. If you can just each one of you address them, um, that will be that will be excellent. Uh, and we'll go again, Diana, Rick, and Mori, and then maybe in the next next question we'll we'll shift the the order. So um, again, the question is what why personalization matter? Uh, what is the promise of personalization in food, and what is the status of personalization now um, as, as the industry stands? Thank you so much. So Diana, off to you. Okay, so perhaps I have a little bit of a unique position here because I'm, I'm not in tech, I don't have um, any software, I'm doing more teaching. And so one of the thing that comes to me as a question all the time is, Deanna, which, which diet should I be following? So I play a role as clinician, researcher, educator, and that's the number one question. People just wanna know what should I be eating? And I think that if we look at the 20th century and the evolution of nutrition science, what we see is that it was primarily about a food pyramid. It was primarily about public health guidelines. It was uh, very generalized to the mass population. And then when we had the Human Genome Project, which birthed and, and more or less emerged in 2003, where we started to really see the information from that coming out into application, what I think happened was we started to apply different concepts as it related to genomics to food. And then we started to apply it to people and health conditions. I remember when I was in graduate school um, in the 1990s, one of the things that had come out was functional foods. And so functional foods, I think, was an attempt at personalization. That's where foods have morphed to try to better fit a health state that would be designed for an individual. But now we have an interface, it's almost like a Venn diagram, where we have the genomics of a person, uh, we have the genomics of food, we have the overall biomarkers that a person has, laboratory markers, so we can see how well those different genes are performing. So where are we now in 2020? Uh, so <laughs> I, I think that we're, we're still pretty new out of the gate on this. I, I would say that I'm, I'm uh, cautiously optimistic. I, I would like to see us moving faster on this front, but I think that there are so many things that we still do not know about how to personalize. Sure, we can look at genes, we can look at single nucleotide polymorphisms or gene variants, but then we also have to consider epigenetics, which is a whole very complex field, like the overlay on top of genetics and how those things are changing. So I, I do think that as part of personalized nutrition, uh, what we have to consider is a couple of things. We need to look at perhaps the constitution, the genes. We need to look at functional biomarkers. We have to look at taste preferences. One of the things that I'm seeing in the literature as of late is how taste and sensory preferences help people with compliance to a certain diet. 
So if somebody doesn't like the taste of certain foods, are they going to stay on that? So I think that that's an opportunity. That's where there's promise for the food industry is to create tailored products that aren't ultra processed, but different ways that we can bring things together. And I do think that technology has helped us. I think that technology has helped us in the way of personalization. I was talking with Dr. Michael Schneider at um, Stanford, you know, the fact that he wears on a daily basis seven different devices in order to look at pulse ox, to look at heart rate. And the, I, I think that the more information we have about ourselves as an individual, just even throughout a day, because we could be very different, can actually change our behaviors. So that's my pie in the sky overview of personalized nutrition and where we're at. Excellent. Uh, I, we'll get a little bit more in kind of where the, what the future looks like, but I think you, you started to outline it a little bit. And I, I, I just wanted to kind of uh, earmark epigenetics because this is a very fascinating, uh, very fascinating field and, and very early on. Uh, and there's a lot of other things, uh, you know, like microbiome and so on and so forth. Uh, but anyway, as, as we have the discussion, you know, you probably can touch on all those points. So Rick, off to you. That was a, a great uh, baseline, Deanna, to, to describe uh, personalized nutrition, a uh, wonderful description. Uh, so I've been, as I mentioned before, I've been doing this uh, for over 20 years and I've given a lot of presentations of, over the decades. And uh, one of the scenarios I always talk about, um, the typical scenario, I would say back at least, uh, maybe even now, but certainly 20 years ago was when a patient would go in to see their doctor and they're interested in diet improvement what could the doctor do back then 20 years ago? They would give out pamphlets, going back to the pyramid kind of thing, and say, eat more fruits and vegetables, whole grains, reduce your, it used to be fat, now we know that was the wrong thing, and, and perhaps saturated fat was the right thing, but that was the best we could have done in personalization. And what happened? The patient leaves, and they throw up their hands and say, what do I do? How do I make this change? They really needed a very detailed description of how to take where they're at now and move it forward. So to me, personalization uh, is, is um, as Deanna said, there's a different ways of looking at personalization and how to do it. You can look at genetics, you can look at biomarkers, the gut microbiome is a new, very buzzy thing and has great promise, but we're, we're really at the tip of the iceberg, I think, on all these things. Even in the software world, when we look at food tracking or what we do with diet assessment, all these things are, are very early on, and there's a lot of promise, which I know we'll be talking about later on where this is going to head it. Now, for us, our view, and if you look at nutritional um, behavior frameworks, they all start with assessment. And so, to me, the best way to start with personalization is looking at the way of what is someone doing now and giving them a roadmap. So another thing we do in a lot of our presentations is use Google Maps as kind of a an analogy to what we think of personalized nutrition. Know where someone is today and then help them map out where they need to get to and have these st stopping points along the way that allow them to easily make changes to their diet. Now there's, there's the big bang theory of just moving someone to a brand new diet and that can work maybe in short term, but a lot of the science says long term, we really wanna tweak people's diets towards where we wanna get them. Uh, the other thing that we've learned in, in the studies that we've done and supported is that the science says personalization helps best when it comes to changing diet behavior. Behavior is really, really difficult. And to make it a habit, you need to introduce these small points 
of change that allow a person to be able to take them in, do them, and move to the next set. If you have them do too many things too quickly, that's setting them up for failure and frustration and, and really uh, has, has a um, potential detrimental result. So uh, to me, uh, personalization is really the key towards the future of change and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll move the whole society towards that. Yeah, thank you so much, Rick. I think you make a, a great point about uh, uh, innovation on the margin, just making the small little habits. I think behavior science is going to be really crucial in, in changing people's way, the way that people eat. And, and just to tie a point at the animate, food has to taste well. You know, people <laughs> say, how many kale salads can I have? You know, I just be, and, and, that tastes good. So, um, you know, people just, have just to want to make those changes, right? They, <laughs> they, and, and if it doesn't taste good, I'll forget it. Yeah, exactly. Maury, well, how about you? Perhaps I can provide more of a technology-centric answer to the same questions that uh, Diana and Rick uh, described so well. Why does personalization matter? Because people are different. Uh, what works for one doesn't work for another. Um, you show me someone who suffers from diabetic type two, and I will show you someone who may have one or several other concerns such as high triglycerides, high cholesterol, obesity, and so on. So we cannot treat every diabetic patient the same way. We've got to personalize, individualize what we tell them and how we guide them. We need uh, technology and approach that takes into account their unique profile, their individual concerns. And that is also important to the end user from the perspective that people are interested in only what is relevant and actionable for them. So providing them with all kinds of content, all kinds of blogs and blogs and information about um, various health topics uh, puts the pressure and the focus on them to do all the hard work to extract and derive from all that content what is relevant to them. And as we know, we are all kind of lazy and we don't have uh, a lot of time to do a lot of research to do that kind of stuff. As for uh, our status, where we are, um, perhaps I should share with you that about 12 years ago, I wrote an article focused on personalization, which got published uh, by Mobile Marketeer Guy and it is available on my LinkedIn profile for those who are interested. But in that paper, I described four stages of personalization. Uh, again, more of a technology-centric approach, but I think it's just as relevant today as it was then. Those four stages are you know, context-sensitive, menu of choices, personalization, and intimacy. Those are kind of the four stages. And where we are today from a more of a technology and implementation perspective, most uh, vendors and players are very concerned about personalization, but what they offer really falls into the first two categories of context sensitive and menu of choices. Um, context sensitive means um, I go to WebMD, I look for cholesterol and they show me ads for cholesterol lowering drugs. So they have a context-sensitive approach to personalization. Menu of choices means 
um, I go to say WebMD and they offer me 20 different health conditions that I can learn about. And I um, click on cholesterol and they send me a newsletter on cholesterol every day, but they don't take into account the fact that uh, I also suffer from high triglycerides and other complications. The next stage is personalization, which is where we are mostly talking about. Um, in the first two cases, notice that they offer that content and guidance without knowing anything about me. So I could be an athlete uh, trying to go for a triathlon, or I could be an 80-year-old man suffering from four different conditions. And what they show me, what they offer me in terms of content doesn't change. But in the third stage of personalization, we actually learn about the user, we learn about the patient, take into account all the concerns, and then spit back our recommendations. Um, so I leave it at that for the sake of um, brevity. Um, I'll be happy to talk about the next stage, which is more futuristic, which is what I called intimacy. Okay. Uh, Julia, you wanted to uh, jump in with a, with a comment? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so one thing that I, I think about when I think about uh, personalization is uh, the human genome. So a lot of times um, people think um, the doctor recommended this food item to my friend or suggested that my friend should eat this. So definitely since it works for her, it should work for me. And they get really a big surprise when they realize that they have different outcomes. And why do we have different outcomes even when you have you're exposed to exactly the same thing? And that's where variation in the human genome comes in. And um, one of the things uh, we've seen with research, um, my research, for instance, I, I remember we worked for a very prolonged time on understanding a particular compound. It's found in prosperous vegetables because this is broadcasted live. I don't want to go into specific names because I don't want people to run off with partial information. So um, we, we, we investigated this. We used 13 different breast cancer cell lines. We exposed the different cell lines to the same compound. And what did we see? We saw different responses in different cell lines. By, by breast cancer cell lines, I mean they were from different sources, so from different people. And what is different about them? The, the mutation in those different cell lines, uh, 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 they varied. So we have a chart, we look at the different cells, we look at the genetic variations, and we see how they respond to this compound from food, um, this uh, particular compound. And we saw that it has a very potent anti-cancer property but the sensitivity of the different cell lines varied. Why? Because the genetic variation exists between all the cell lines. What am I trying to point out? When it comes to personalization, there is a stage where we are now. We talk about people's um, disease um, states. Maybe they have um, this, um, they're struggling with, um, like Maury mentioned, they're struggling with um, diabetes. They have this. Doctors knows all those details and will rec make recommendations based on those details. But there's another level that we're getting to. And that's where people can easily check their genetic um, makeup and see this is what I'm predisposed to. This, these are the specific mutations I have. These are the uh, um, specific um, SNPs that this. Um, person has, and this is how compounds from these food types will interact with my genome and affect my outcomes, my health outcomes, um, which might be different from my friends. Why? Because we're all different. So that's, that's something, that's personalization, um, maybe at the next level. We're not there yet in terms of our information, but the way things are going, uh, we'll get to a point where everybody 
of I would like, would I say maybe like it would be a standard, of, uh, a normal standard of care when people go to the hospital to have babies that you have their um, full genome analysis done just at birth. We're not there at this point, but there's some um, there's some predict there's some uh, predictions that in a few five ten years we might have might be that affordable that people would just be see it as part of our standard of care. So when you know those kind of information now, doctors will factor that into their analysis. Now doctors deal with what they know. What they know is your well, um, what they get, information they get from your blood work, from all the um, tests they run for now. But later when we have more information, we have detailed genetic information about individual as part of their, uh, their chat, their medical chat, then doctors can make more informed decisions and recommendations um, when it comes to personalized nutrition. You have bigger data, you have more precise recommendations. So that's kind of like where I see personalization going to the next level. And when I think about uh, personalized nutrition, sorry, when I think about personalized nutrition, that's what comes to mind. It's unique for you. Um, it's, yeah, that's, that's why I keep saying. Okay, okay. thank, you, thank yeah. you so much for, for, for jumping in here. Uh, uh, so uh, just, just for the sake of, of time, uh, we want to keep this moving. Um, uh, Rick, you wanted to make another point, but you know, make it brief if you can, so we can, we can yep. get to the more exciting fields of what's uh, next. Uh, you know, do the kind of outline a little bit, but yeah. Absolutely, I'll do, I'll do this really quick, but just to work on what Julia just said, I just reminded, remembered a point that one of my uh, uh, genetics experts that I've worked with over the decades, he's got a slide that shows the correlation between saturated fat intake and LDL. And the general guidelines from the US is lower saturated fat, lower LDLs. But his comment is we're all in N and 1. And if you look at the studies that look at this, it's, it's like a graph that shows people at the left having high impact. And then as you go to the right, there are actually people who lowering saturated fat will actually increase LDL. And so every person is an end of one and how we respond is really a set of lots of factors. And so that's why personalization is so important. All right, so with that in mind, I just uh, kind of want to take it, you know, 30,000 30, feet in the air and, and, and kind of, you know, think a little bit about, uh, you know, where, where personalization is going next. I mean, we already earmark kind of genomics as the next, you know, field, but then there's the microbiome, real-time bio, biomarkers, they're exciting technologies that in real time, you know, nanotechnology in real time, checking your, uh, your blood biochemistry or checking your gut microbiome. So what do you guys see in the next five to 10 years? If you can kind of put your thinking, you know, wish, wishing hat on and just say, I expect in 10 years personalization to be X, Y, Z and, you know, be wild in your predictions. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe we will have like perfect personalization. Don't we uh, go again in the, the same order, just Deanna, uh, Rick, and Maury. So Deanna, up to you. Okay. I've been reflecting on this for a long time, and I do have a vision which feels like science fiction, mm -hmm. but I'm going to put it out there. <laughs> so here's my vision. My vision is that we use our smartphone. Everything is smart in this new world, right? It, we use that word smart to refer to technology and the application of technology. So let's imagine that our smartphone helps us to communicate better with our different biomarkers. And we're able to get blood glucose just right here using the light of our camera. We can get heart rate, pulse ox. We can get all of these very intricate measurements that will help us to make the best decision. And then we go to the grocery store or the market and we start to look at 
what are our needs in that moment and we start to scan different foods to find out which foods might actually have the nutrients that we need let's just take an example there's a uh, we're looking in the apple section in the produce but maybe not all those apples well we know that they're not created equal and they're not created equal for our bodies maybe we need a little bit more quercetin so we scan and we try to see which apple is really best for our physiology and i don't see this as very time constrained i see it as being quick it moves through light i think that the future of personalized nutrition is using photons is using light in order to gauge quick assessments of blood metabolic markers and then applying those same markers or at least bringing them over into food selections. And I really like what Rick was saying about behavior, because I do think that if you don't measure it, chances are you won't change it, but you have to have a motivator. Why are you even thinking about changing? So I think in this dynamic of scanning biomarkers, scanning foods, we need to be in touch with our mood, our mood sensor, our, um, you know, how do all of those different objective biomarkers play into our subjective terrain and our behavior? Because we might have varying levels of motivation on a particular day. So I, I'm seeing um, some intersection of all three of those areas, food, our objective markers, and our subjective behavior. That's excellent. I, I love the vision of personalized food where you know exactly which apple contains how much of each nutrient. Uh, and and there have been some technologies around uh, what is gotten a bad rap, like CRISPR-9 being able to kind of modify the genome of each individual grain of rice and whatnot so we can identify, you know, where this grain of rice came and what it contains. But anyway, just it, it getting carried out. But I love the vision. It's awesome. Rick? Yeah, I think, again, going on what Deanna just said, um, uh, I hadn't thought of this until she mentioned it, but I know I've, I've had discussions with some individuals on using image recognition in, in production of food to recognize when, when vegetables and fruits are damaged or in, in best quality from a nutritional standpoint. But um, bringing it back to some of the things that we're currently working on, have worked on where we're going with things. So I think we were we may have been the first organization to ever attempt to do image recognition on diet assessment. So uh, we had a very large NIH U01 grant for those who are familiar with NIH grants about uh, 13 years ago, early on in the capability of, use, of even smartphones. If you remember back, back then, we were still using flip phones, not really smartphones. And what we attempted to do was use the camera for someone to take a picture of their food and automatically identify the food in the portion size. Now, the, that project went on for five, six years, and eventually we did get a version that worked in the lab, and it ended up taking, uh, we had people taking short videos using their smartphone, kind of scanning over their plate, and, and uh, we would identify the food in the portion size and did it pretty accurately in the lab. Now, in the real, in the real life use of these tools where light and other things happen, Back then, going eight years ago, it was still very difficult. But uh, going back to my prediction, we will, or someone will perfect that, and that will work. And going back to Deanna, it'll be kind of one of those things where you're ready to sit and eat or trying to figure something out. Uh, it'll happen. Um, we also had another uh, project from NIH that was funded where uh, we helped people, Yelp helps people find a place to eat 
we developed a tool to help find a plate to eat based on the individual's background. So if you had kidney failure or diabetes and you were out in uh, a city like New York or Philadelphia wanted to find something to eat that would fit your style of eating that you wanted to do, you could bring it up like Yelp and find within a radius a place where on the menu we could find something to help you eat uh, appropriately. Uh, again, the, the problem with that, there's uh, at least before COVID-19, there were over 900,000 restaurants and uh, not very many of them actually had their menus analyzed. Um, the, the other component of all of this sticking with the technology is of course, things like, like new, what we've talked about before, nutrigenomics, microbiome. Microbiome is a very early on uh, uh, component. And so, same thing with nutrigenomics. Although we know some SNPs, we still don't know the interrelationship between a lot of them and how it's going to impact health. Does these SNPs really mean that you need to increase your folate and will that really help you? Or are there other components getting to epigenetics, epigenetics that are going to impact that? And, and so again, uh, to me, the, the future is going to be integrating all these things into a holistic approach where you have diet assessment, you have real-time feedback, you have barriers to 10 to 5 because that is a, a component of behavior. There's face recognition where you can look at the emotional component of it and adjust the recommendation. And then add the nutrigenomics, the biomarkers, the, the wristband, immediate blood glucose, so you can look at the response of food. I could go on for another hour, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. I think we can see there, there's a wide open future for us and, and we'll get there, whether it's five years or 50 years, I'm not sure though. All right, sounds good. I, I think we're on the same wavelength here, uh, but it, it's still good to kind of hear the, the, the slightly different visions. So Maury, how, how do you see humanity in 10 years with personalized nutrition? Is it gonna be anno one, every meal is gonna be fully, fully personal? Okay, well, I learned a long time ago that when you talk about short-term futures, it's more important to be accurate than interesting. But when you're talking about long-term and far future, it's more important to be interesting than accurate. With that in mind, here's my two cents. In five years from now, I can see the following scenario. I travel to a new city. I go to some decent restaurant. All the items on the menu of that restaurant are already in a centralized database. I open up my app, the app and the server that supports the app knows all about my background, my individual profile. And thanks to the technology from Edamam and some help from Personal Remedies, I will be able to get an advice from my app for the best five recipes that are served in that restaurant for my unique health profile. All of the ingredients to make that happen is a reality today in terms of technology. It's a question of getting all these restaurants, as Rick pointed out very rightfully so, getting on the bandwagon and being more sensitive to the individual needs of their uh, clients. And, and that's something that is very achievable within the next five years. As for uh, 50 years from now, uh, I can see that um, due to some implanted chip in my body, 
my personal robot at home can monitor my food intake, my stress level, my vital signs. And as I get closer to home, the robot recognizing based on all the data it's been collecting that I've had a long stressful situation and knowing my health profile would prepare my choice of martini or, uh, uh, or uh, uh, fruit-based uh, uh, cocktail and so on. And so that when I walk in, I can actually be served uh, that drink. And this is an example of the intimacy stage of personalization that I was talking about. Because in this case, we didn't tell the robot to make that um, martini. It took the initiative based on all the data that was constantly being transmitted and fed to him, made the decision to offer something that he thought would be appropriate and uh, nutritious. And, uh, uh, and remember, we have to be concerned about nutrition for the soul and not just the body. And that's where the martini comes in. Um, so that's the kind of future that we could all be looking at. Um, as I said, the robot and the chip are collecting all the data that uh, they need in order to monitor all the health situation and uh, vital signs of a patient, of an individual, in order to be able to uh, implement that. And of course, the robot can also order all the groceries that I need because knows the inventory in the fridge, as well as knows my preferences, as well as knows that you know I have kidney stones, therefore he's not gonna order spinach and kale, instead he's gonna order some other vegetable. Also in the future, maybe five years from now, but definitely in 50 years from now, it's gonna be uh, sensitive to the fact that this is fall and not winter or this is a springtime and not fall. And based on that, makes proper selection of the right foods. It's also smart enough to recognize that this broccoli is being farmed in Southern California, while this broccoli is being farmed in Northern New York. And therefore the oxalate content of these two are gonna be different. And it's gonna take all of that into account when it orders uh, the appropriate vegetable that's right for that season and it's tied to where it was farmed and it's definitely tied to um, the profile, the individual personalized profile. I hope I haven't caused a lot of confusion, but you asked for it, uh, Victor, so here you go. It was definitely interesting. Whether it's accurate, we'll see, <laughs> for sure. But I, I like the I like the martini and the food for the soul. Um, you know, bottom line though, it, it sounds like you know the future seems to be predicated on technology coming together, technology of tracking what a person is doing, technology of tracking you know where the food is grown, uh, technology of understanding in real time uh, all those data points. You know, and with AI and quantum computing. Uh, uh, advancing at a at a brisk pace, it, that doesn't seem so unreasonable to expect in in you know in the next one or two decades, or maybe maybe less than five. Uh, and I just want to use that as a prelude to the next question, which is, uh, you know, in, to some extent you you all have already answered that question, but it is 
you know, what is the role of technology in driving personalization and, and to make it a little bit more precise, which technologies are you personally most excited about? Um, you know, Julia definitely mentioned genomics, but I, I, you know, I'd love to hear what other technologies you think that are gonna make the most difference. So, and let's go, let's go reverse order. Let's go with Maury, then Rick, then Deanna. Okay. Um, clearly, by, all, by now, we have all uh, concluded, frankly, in our remarks that technology is essential for personalization. I cannot imagine us being able to personalize our guidance without both of both advances in medical technology and genomics and so on, as well as uh, the IT-centered and mobile technology and telecommunications technology and so on. Uh, whenever you have too many variables, too much data to absorb, digest, analyze in order to formulate your recommendations, you gotta have technology. You can't do without it. As an example, we track something close to 100 different nutrients. If you have only 1,000 food items, that is 100,000 relationships that one needs to memorize just to know the nutrient content of those 1,000 food items. Now, if we have two, 300 illnesses, and we have 1,000 foods, food items, ingredient level food items, I've got to memorize 200 to 300,000 relationships in terms of helpfulness or harmfulness of a given food item as it relates to a given illness. Now I take it one step further. Victor is building a system that has up to say 5 million recipes to maintain information about helpfulness, harmfulness of each of those recipes as it relates to 200 different illnesses. That's 100 million different relationships. No smart dietitian, nutritionist, human can memorize and recall all that data. Furthermore, everything that I said is backed by hundreds of research papers, hundreds of publications. No human being can recall all of those research papers and findings in order to formulate a recommendation. And therefore, Without technology and a smart use of technology and advances in technology such as artificial intelligence, expert systems, um, and equivalent to those in the medical profession such as um, application of AI to imaging and uh, genomics and so on. Without use of technology, we can never really implement personalization. All right, thank you. Uh, Rick? That was that was great, Maury. And uh, uh, again, I'll I'll work off of uh, what you what you said. Um, so as I mentioned before, and on, on my background, we've been supporting diet researchers, uh, kind of a who's who of of the U.S. research world for almost thirty years. And I can tell you, there has been a a migration from researching 
individual nutrients that was typical 20, 30, 40 years ago. And the current view is more about diet patterns and how to measure diet patterns and its impact. Because um, although we eat foods and we eat nutrients, it's really the diet patterns that have maybe the biggest impact to, to health long-term. And so there are a number of these dietary quality scores. The, the, probably the best known and the most studied is something called the Healthy Eating Index, HEI, from USDA. But people are familiar with the Mediterranean diet. There's a score from the Mediterranean diet. There, Harvard has something called the Alternative Healthy Eating Index. Uh, long and short of it, uh, focusing on our contribution to, to moving the technology is we're looking at better, better ways to measure these different dietary quality scores. Uh, and, and there's actually another one that we, uh, another score that we work with uh, from uh, James E. Bear from University of South Carolina called the Dietary Inflammatory Index. Uh, and inflammation is a very, very hot topic right now as well. And what's an anti-inflammatory diet? Well, we can measure that through a diet intake. So to us, improving the diet assessment and, and food changes. So we always have to change the diet assessment, being able to measure the diet itself from some type of dietary score, get identify the nutritional gaps for that individual the, for the best score for them, and then provide them with guidance on how to minimize that gaps or move them towards a higher dietary quality score. Uh, going back to HEI, uh, NIH had done a study uh, a number of years ago on almost 500,000 retired individuals. They tracked them for 18 years, and they looked at these dietary quality indexes like HEI and, and showed, demonstrated a correlation towards higher HEI score, lower mortality across all disease states, but especially cardiovascular disease and cancer. So if you take a population, and although we're an N of one, if you apply this technology and the science towards a large group and then can move that group five points in HEI score, we know statistically and clinically that, that we will improve the health of, of the individuals. And so going, going to the AI part of this, when you look at the behavior aspect of it, our view is that as we collect, we, we have hundreds of thousands of records right now on diet patterns of individuals. As we move forward, we can start looking at the, the different recommendations that people are given and, and taken and use AI to then future adjust those recommendations to the individuals to take into account. And then again, start adding the genomics and the biomarkers and all those other things. And I see every year some better improvement. And, and actually, I would say we're gonna go from personalized nutrition to precision nutrition and precision health and be part of the precision, precision medicine effort that's going on now. Uh, thank, thank you, Rick. Thank you for the distinction between personalized and precision. And, uh, and you touched on a couple of important talks that, that if we have a couple of minutes, we can talk about, you know, uh, inflammation, immunity, the idea that N of one is great, but ultimately there is like what we call herd, you know, immune, the population management and so on and so forth. Uh, with that being said, let, let's hear what Deanna uh, so I want to say that my left brain, my, my side of logic and science, loves what Maury and Rick are saying, especially Maury, you um, riffing on the robot and talking about this. Whole, you know, that's a movie. To me, that's a movie. Can you only imagine what that would look like, right? But then there's another part of me. It's the right side of my brain. It's the creative, artistic, connected to nature side that says, wait a minute, if I circumnavigate all of my biomarkers and give that over to a robot, how am I losing a sense of my own being? 
how do I continue to stay on the pulse of my intuitive feeling about how I am? Because if I lose my phone, then forget about it. If my robot is is on the on the, the fritz and, and dies out for some reason, I'm going to feel really lost. And so I always want to be sure that the individual stays empowered, that we don't give over our sense of empowerment to a device, to technology. We use it as a tool and not as the main driver. That's really, you know, my holistic mindset comes out when I hear this. I think technology is great. I think it needs to be used rather than for it to use us, right? And so I just want to put that in context. Now that said, uh, when Victor said, where would we like to see like in our dreamscape, where would we like to see some evolution here? So one area that I see a huge gap and me being in the dietary supplement industry for decades now, people do shotgun supplementation. They have no clue for the most part what they should be taking. They read something, they hear something, they hear about vitamin D, regardless of getting their levels tested, they just start taking it. They're not really sure. And then they're not really on the pulse. I think we need something really smart to help people with supplementation so that they know, because even laboratory tests, even for functional medicine providers are imperfect, imperfect, because they're just looking at certain sections of the body. They're not really looking at the whole metabolic web. So I think we can be best served by looking at something with supplementation. The other thing that I think is important, and I've already seen it out there, and I know you're, you're probably going to laugh at me saying this, but I've actually seen a smart toilet. How do we get in touch with our digestive tract, right? Our poop. Let's just get there. Let's start tracking our own patterns of our microbiome, or at least what's not adhering, what's coming out. That may not be the microbiome. That might be a byproduct of the microbiome. You know, there's still so much we have yet to learn, but I do think that looking at end products and looking at what we're putting in is really important. Measuring urine, measuring sweat, measuring things that we have accessibility to, not always blood, but not being, uh, I would say, pandering to technology and let it letting it take over, but truly being in the driver's seat of that. And I'll just say one last thing. I have a lot of passion for chrononutrition, the element of time, diurnal rhythm. There's now chronomedicine, uh, chrono metabolic syndrome we know about, but now there's a uh, chrono dysfunction syndrome. The element of light and me being in the Seattle area, I'm really in tune with this whole idea of not having light. And we see diseases in those parts of the world. And so how do we be more in tune with diurnal patterns? I think that technology can help us better with that. Well, thank you. Thank you, Diana. This is, this is great. And I, I'm actually personally excited also about the smart toilets and, uh, and everything, because I think this is one of those technologies you're just going to sneak in and people, everyone is going to own one and then it, it, would, it would be a game changer. Uh, we have four minutes left. Uh, there's one, uh, there's a few questions, but uh, one question which is uh, kind of taken us a little bit out of the discussion, but it's important uh, because especially of the elephant in the room, which is the pandemic. Uh, the, the question came from Jorge and he asked how to help the majority of population. Uh, you know, I, I know it takes us away from personalization, but can we meaningfully use personalization to help the majority of population? And if you can just Spend a minute each on that would be great because we have to wrap up. So uh, Rick, Maury, Diana, just very short answer of how can we use personalization to help the majority of population? 
Rick, off to you. Yeah, I, I, I've been thinking, you know, I, I think right now my view is, and again, because I'm so deep in helping diet researchers, I think what we're, we're trying to do now is change the whole um, public recommendation model that is an RDA that fits everyone to uh, a more global understanding of what things can impact the individual and, and migrate these things to something that people can hear the message and learn something from it and apply it to themselves. So, um, so it, it's kind of taking it from this global generalization to uh, making sure the public understands that you really need to take everything and personalize it to yourself. So instead of my plate and my pyramid, it'd be my personal plate and my personal pyramid type of thing. Exactly. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mori, your, your thoughts on that? Well, uh, we need to recognize that uh, our progress is going to be a sequence of baby steps and incremental delivery. So we talked about all kinds of great concepts, both in terms of uh, medical technology and IT, but in terms of delivering it to the population, it's going to happen over time in baby steps and so on. Having said that, there are a lot of capabilities already there. You know, I don't want to kind of promote our tools and capabilities, but we have today technology in form of apps as well as content in our uh, knowledge base that can deliver personalized guidance for someone who suffers from a number of different chronic illnesses. And that delivery is uh, including ability to just use your iPhone and download an app to get those kinds of guidance today get answer to questions such as, is asparagus good for me, yes or no? Or what are the best choices of nuts and seeds for my personal profile and my health situation? So a lot of those capabilities exist today, but they are not widely known. They are not widely implemented in variety of other content provider and scenarios for delivery of nutrition. Um, a lot of hospitals try to provide you dietary guidance when you check out, but it's just not as personalized. As uh, I think Rick mentioned earlier, they may give you a handout, a printed page that has been copied a hundred times. On one side, it says, uh, here are things you should be eating if you have high cholesterol. On the other side, it says, um, here are things you should avoid if you have high cholesterol. So it, it, it's not personalized, but it is an attempt yeah. to provide some uh, dietary guidance, and we're just building upon that. Maury, let me, uh, let me uh, sorry, just because we're running out of time, Diana, if you have like one or two, uh, one or two sentences to address that, be great. Uh, I know we have to wrap up because there is a next panel coming in, so. Well, to Jorge's question, I would say plants. The common denominator is plants. It's uh, accessible, affordable, and also medicinal. So I would say that here's a case where we may need to look to common denominators rather than to personalization. Love it. Love it. Thank you, everyone. This was uh, an amazing panel. Always very exciting to talk to you, and uh, especially in a group like that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'd like to share a very important tool that makes it very easy for me to prepare this podcast every single episode with you. And that tool is a platform called Anchor. Anchor is 
a platform created by Spotify, which makes it very easy to record, edit, merge, insert music into your audio, and just prepare everything you need for each of your episodes. It also makes it easy for you to work with your team as well. They could prepare the files for you and you upload easily or they upload for you. Whatever you want to do with preparing for and broadcasting your podcast, Anchor makes it easy. So check it out. It's free to create your account. And I also want to add this as a sponsored segment. Thank you again for listening to this episode. I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Thank you for joining us for another session of Food and Health Talks. We invite you to subscribe to this channel, share this with your friends and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a review for us. Together, we are joining hands to shape a healthier future of food.